Hi, I'm Molly Weinberg, and I'm a Philly-based lifestyle influencer who gives all the deets when it comes to wellness, travel, even entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Molly Weinberg Podcast, where I chat with experts ranging from gut health specialists to fashion icons and everything in between. I want to share all the specifics to help you live your best life. I'm not sparing any details. Yep, no questions are off limits. Every week, you will walk away from each episode feeling more motivated and more informed than before. Tune in weekly to the Molly Weinberg Podcast to never miss a beat. And I think it's asking ourselves the simple question, is there anything I'm avoiding within myself? Like, is there anything that wants to be felt? Is there any emotion that wants to be felt that is living in my body right now that I am doing these other things to avoid feeling? Mm. And if so, that's a destructive cycle. It's the thing that you're avoiding feeling is only going to get more intense. That clip you just heard is from the very powerful, very brilliant Brandilyn Tipo. And I may be biased because I've known Brandy since I was 14 years old, friends from freshman year of high school, actually. Um, but this woman is incredible. Brandilyn is an acclaimed transformational coach, founder and host of the Shift Retreats, best-selling author and inspirational speaker. Yeah, she's my age, guys. She specializes in inner child work, subconscious belief, reprogramming, parts, work, and acceptance and commitment therapy. She has traveled the world to teach empowering workshops in high schools, prisons, Fortune 500 companies, and colleges. Today, she coaches clients on how to remove internal barriers to following their hearts, changing the world, and being the fullest expression of themselves. Woo! She is the author of the book, The Achievement Trap. It's an amazing read, by the way, and a columnist. She also hosts seminars, transformational, all-inclusive men's and women's retreats, and her signature online program, True Power. This is one of the best episodes I've recorded thus far. I had to put it as number one. It's so inspiring and motivating, and you just want I, – I just wanted to keep recording. There was just so much more to talk about. You'll see for yourself, and please, if you enjoy, rate, review, and subscribe. I know this is a heavy question, but from your perspective, how do you see the world? And the reason I'm asking this is because I would say that you are such a ray of light and you're so positive and you're so happy. So when you see a situation, are you seeing the glass half full, half empty, or is there just like a different perspective that I'm missing? Mm. Wow. I'm getting right to it, huh? All right. Yeah, we're jumping in. The world. Interesting. I believe that we all are almost like wearing these virtual reality headsets where we're not seeing the world as it actually is. We're seeing the world through a filter. And the filter that we're seeing the world through is based on our subconscious, largely. We are receiving over 2 million bits per second of data through all of our senses in every second. And we're only consciously registering 126 of those bits. <laughs> over 99% of the data that we're receiving from the external world and every second is being filtered out. And the particular 0.01% that we're seeing is what's left over after all of our subconscious beliefs are done filtering out all the other evidence that doesn't match our subconscious beliefs. So we're missing 
so much. And that's just part of our human design. It's not bad. We would be incredibly overwhelmed if we were consciously registering 2 million bits per second of data. Yeah, I'll say. It kind of has to be this way. And it's really exciting when we realize that we can shift our experience of reality. Like when people talk about you create your own reality, this is what they're talking about. We get to choose what wavelengths we filter in and we filter out. And we do that by kind of excavating these subconscious beliefs that are limiting our perception of reality or are not giving us the experiences that we want to have of ourselves and others. So I believe that there's a lot of choice in the way that we see the world and that we can call forth a different world, a different experience of the world based on what we're choosing to believe. And one of the most, I find life-giving perspectives that we can live from that has really transformed my life. I came across this quote maybe mm, eight or 10 years ago, and I've tried to live by it ever since. And it's just the quote, life is happening for you, not to you. Mm -hmm. And I find that every time I choose to make that shift, and I choose to ask myself the question, how is this happening for me? How is this happening for me? It gives me access to a whole new way of being, a whole new way of approaching the situation. I see all new actions to take. It gives me access to a whole new set of feelings. I can access gratitude. I can access compassion. I can access curiosity rather than feeling like a victim, being frustrated and in resistance to reality. I actually get to choose reality exactly as it is. So how do I see the world? I, I choose the perspective that the world is happening for me, that life is happening for me, not because it's necessarily true. Like, I don't think it's objectively true that life is happening for me. It's just the perspective that I find gives me the most access to being who I want to be and having the experience of the world that I want to have. So do you think the subconscious beliefs are ingrained from your upbringing or where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All, all sorts of different places. Our nervous system is like a computer. It can be coded, you know, just like how you can compute, <laughs> compute, you can code a computer program to have certain responses based on algorithms. That's like what our nervous system is. And our neuroception is the perception that our nervous system has in every moment. Our nervous system, it's almost like it has all these little tendrils out into our environment in every second, registering cues primarily registering cues of safety versus threat. And then that gives us what beliefs are surfacing. It gives what emotions are surfacing. It gives our body sensations. It really, the way that our nervous system is subconsciously perceiving our reality moment to moment really gives us our experience of reality. And the way that our nervous systems are hardwired or programmed is based on all of our past experiences, all of the, the coding that our life has has programmed into us. A lot of it comes from society. It's like when we're born into a certain society, we have these like programs that are uploaded into our nervous system and into our, our subconscious belief systems. And when we're not bringing conscious awareness to them, it's just the water we're swimming in. It feels like the objective truth when really it's not because mm -hmm. we're so surrounded by these collective agreements that we have in our society that few of us stop to really question them. Mm -hmm. So it comes from our society. It comes from all of our past experiences, decisions that we've made in response to hurt. 
I call them protective decisions, things that we've decided about, okay, well, I don't ever want to feel rejected again. So therefore I'm going to be less self-expressed or I'm going to always have the right answer, or I'm going to always be the funniest one in the room so that I can deflect potential rejection. Like these are all decisions that we're conscious for a microsecond at some point in our life. And then it becomes subconscious and it starts filtering our experience of reality until we make it conscious again. Wow. I have so many thoughts. This is going to be really hard to do at an hour. (laughs) Okay. So when you were just saying like you take the moment to think or feel compassion or empathy or whatever that may be, is that break that down? Like, is that like you maybe being in an instance of someone hurting your feelings and then being like, okay, let me just like take a second, bring myself like center myself and then like act. Or this is like at night, I think I reflect on my day and tomorrow I'm going to be X, Y, Z. Yeah. It's all throughout the day. There's a quote by somebody that I always forget who said this, but it says, there's a space between stimulus and response. In that space lies your freedom. And that's really what I teach in my coaching and at my retreats. And my whole philosophy is teaching people how to create that space between stimulus and response Mm -hmm. where something happens and we have a moment of awareness where we can actually consciously choose how we want to react to it rather than allowing these default programs that are running us Mm -hmm. to control us and react for us rather Mm -hmm. than allowing our wounded parts to act on behalf of us. We can look at our wounded parts. We can look at the trigger. We can look at the insecurity that's Mm -hmm. arising and we can choose how we want to respond to whatever's arising. And that takes a lot of making what's unconscious conscious. And it takes a lot of willingness to take full responsibility for choosing how we respond to life. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure someone, anyone who's listening is thinking, how are you the way you are? Like, how did you get to be this insightful and brilliant? Everything you ever share or post or say, I have to be like, hold on, let me just like process. Okay. Let me reflect. And I'll get back to you in a couple of days. I need need to really like soak it in. So you went to college yeah, Mm -hmm. and you wrote a book (laughs) and you created retreats. And now you do one-on-one coaching. Yeah, no, that's basically it. That's the <laughs> spark notes version of it. Yeah. Well, having amazing friends like you throughout my life has definitely contributed to my path. Um, <laughs> For those who don't know, Brandy and I were friends from, I guess, freshman year of high school and became like super close sophomore year. And she has just been slaying life ever since. I, <laughs> I There's no one, there's legitimately no one else in the world like you. I'm always in awe of everything you do and say. So this is like such an honor to even have you here. Oh my goodness. I feel the same about you, Molly. This podcast would not be what it is without Pulse and Equipment. If you're looking for mics, headphones, audio hardware, they are your people. Pulsen, thank you so, so much. Okay. So where did you go to college and what did you study? Not that it, I mean, you might have a different opinion on this, but I really think, especially nowadays, it doesn't even matter anymore where you go or what you study because you're 18 when you land there and you have the rest of your life and you're barely an adult at 18. Like you are based on experiences and like how, you know, society shapes people. But by the time you really find your groove and find yourself, you could have easily studied something else or got a different track. But anyway, what did you study? So I studied politics at a very liberal arts college in Los Angeles called Occidental College. I don't do anything related to politics at all anymore. However, I'm really grateful for my education because 
since my college was really focused on social justice, the majority of my <clears throat> politics education was actually about studying dominant narratives. Like I was talking about before, mm. these stories, these collective agreements, these programs that we inherit from our society that we are not aware of are running us and are running our view of reality until we make them conscious. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my politics education was about studying hierarchies of power, studying how, how language, our linguistics, the narratives that we tell, the stories that we tell shape power structures and keep those power structures in place and oppress certain people and allow other people to hold power over others and all of these, the politics of, of power structures. And what I do now is helping people understand how they've internalized that, the different ways that we've internalized different forms of oppression, the different way the ways mm -hmm. that we've internalized these narratives about how things are that we didn't consciously choose. So when we can understand, oh, for example, a lot of the work that I do with people is around their body image. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the pivotal pieces of shifting someone's body image from feeling ashamed of their body to feeling self-loving towards mm -hmm. their body is understanding that they've been programmed to hate their bodies by a society that profits off of them hating their bodies. It's really simple when we think about it. Our society benefits off of women despising their bodies because then we don't try to create so much change because we're so wrapped up in and focused on criticizing our own bodies, which helps keep the current power structures in place. And then we end up buying more things like capitalism loves negative body image. It just keeps people feeling dissatisfied and then keeps them buying because they think that, well, if I just spend more money on the right things, then I'll love myself. And I find that- Definitely. Yeah, when people can understand the mechanisms that are at work, the societal political mechanisms that are at work inside of their own minds, it gives them a lot of freedom from it. It's like, oh, that's not mine. I didn't create that. I didn't write that narrative about my body. Why have I been believing this story that I never wrote, that I never chose? Mm -hmm. So my politics education actually does factor in a lot to the transformational work that I do now, surprisingly. I didn't know that it would be so supportive. Yeah, but that was my my background, spent four years there. And then while I was there, I discovered the world of transformation. I started doing personal development programs. Los Angeles is a hotbed for all sorts of different transformational modalities and programs. And as soon as I got a taste of it, of the kind of freedom that, that was available to me that I had no idea was available, the kind of inner peace. I became a junkie <laughs> addicted to, to transformational modalities and studying as much as I could. So I just did program after program and discovered how amazing it feels to give somebody else the experience of shifting their life. I was like, yep, there's nothing else I want to do besides this for forever. <laughs> That's incredible. Who yeah. or what inspired you to write the achievement track? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Recognizing in myself that my obsession with achieving was an addiction that was just as destructive as a drug addiction or alcoholism. Like I was, I was running myself into the ground. I was, I was starving myself. I was doing incredible damage to my body and to my life because of my obsession with needing to get external validation and achieve. And what was at the root of that was my unwillingness to sit with unprocessed emotions that I was running from. I didn't know how to process the trauma from my childhood. 
I didn't know how to process the, the shame and the, the fear and the insecurity that I carried. And so instead I avoided as much mm-hmm. as I could by throwing myself into people pleasing and achievements. And what's so tricky about being an overachiever or a people pleaser or a perfectionist, which is who the book is written for, is that it flies under the radar. Like we don't, in our society, we don't see it as a destructive addiction. We praise it. We praise workaholism. We praise busyness to the point of exhaustion. We like to compete with each other about who's more stressed out and who's more overwhelmed. And I was trying to heal this within myself, trying to heal my eating disorder and my perfectionism and actually return to myself and be with myself rather than doing all the time and escaping myself. And there was like no buy-in for it. Everywhere I looked, I was seeing this addiction. And finally I was like, someone's got to speak more about this. Like we, we need to see that this kind of achieving and perfectionism and people pleasing is an addiction and it's a harmful maladaptive form of escapism. And I wanted to equip people with the tools to be able to return to themselves and meet their emotions, meet whatever was arising in their internal state rather than needing to overwhelm themselves and distract as a form of numbing. Your book was so well-written. I actually highlighted this because I feel like this is such a powerful statement. You not only had an eating disorder, but a doing disorder. Mm-hmm. That's that's heavy. That's like a real thing. I even wrote like in notes that I wanted to touch on this. So it kind of all comes together. But I think a huge theme in women's lives, especially around our age, is that being busy is the goal. Like, oh, I can't, I'm really busy. Okay, I'll get back to you, I'm really busy. I'm busy. So that means I'm productive. So that means I'm successful. And that validate me. It's mm-hmm. like this never ending cycle that can be causing so much damage. Your book was super helpful and able to, I think, advise people who are stuck in the mindset of achieving perfection to kind of like snap out of it. Yeah. And it's not necessarily about what we're doing on the outside. It's about our relationship to it. So when I say I had a doing disorder, it's because I was using doing, I was using busyness. I was using achieving as a way of escaping myself. Like I was Mm. completely checked out and numbed out. I had no idea what was happening within myself because I was constantly focused on gaining more external validation. And now I I'm still very busy and I'm coming from a different place with it. It's coming from inspiration. It's coming from a more embodied place. It's coming from a place of much greater self-awareness. And sometimes I still have to check in with myself and be like, "Mm, Brandy, are you in the achievement shop again? Are you numbing out? Are you avoiding? Are you overwhelming as a way of distracting yourself from what needs to be felt within you? And sometimes I need to bring myself back down and into my body. Even Um, having that awareness though is so important. So props to you because I'm sure there's many people out there listening who wish that they could relate in that way. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's asking ourselves the simple question, is there anything I'm avoiding within myself? Like, is there anything that wants to be felt? Is there any emotion that wants to be felt? that is living in my body right now, that I am doing these other things to avoid feeling. Mm. And if so, that's a destructive cycle. It's the thing that you're avoiding feeling is only going to get more intense. It's like a kink toes. The pressure is just going to keep building up and we can't avoid it for forever. So the sooner we can turn inwards, the easier our job is. 
the easier the job of like feeling what's alive in us actually is. Let's say a partner or just a supportive family member, a friend is seeing their loved one be consumed by this nonstop busyness or spiraling in a way that's just not even productive anymore. What are they to do? How do you, I guess, get someone to realize that they need to look within? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting curious, I think is the best way. Anytime that we try to tell somebody like, this is what you're doing. You're a workaholic. You're using busyness to avoid or distract. It brings up defensiveness and then they deflect and they can't even hear you. And it's not likely that you'll get through to that person if you're telling them this is what you're doing. So instead asking questions, when was the last time that you really slowed down and had time to yourself to really check in with you, to check in with your body, to check in with your heart, to check in with your emotions? When was the last time you were able to do that? And how was that for you? What came up for you? What feelings were there? Did you feel numbness? Did you feel sad? Did you feel loneliness? Wow. Or was there something else? Was there joy there? What was there the last time that you really slowed down and checked in? And if they're like, oh my gosh, I can't even remember, which this is what a lot of my clients say. I can't even remember the last time that I checked in with myself. It's like, okay, and why do you think that is? Do you think that there's something there that maybe subconsciously you're avoiding feeling? Just gently guiding. <laughs> See, that's so insightful. <laughs> do you want to touch on your childhood or your upbringing and kind of like what shaped you into the beautiful young woman you are today? Mm-hmm. The yes and no, I, I, I do. And it's complicated. So I don't, <laughs> there's a lot in my childhood that I don't talk about publicly for various reasons. Um, So while I can't publicly talk about what happened, I can talk about the decisions that I made in response to it, which is actually what's most important. It's not, it's not super important what the trauma was. What's important is what was our reaction to it? What did we decide about ourselves and about life in response to it? And some of the decisions that I made were, I am responsible for the well-being of other people. It's my job to make sure that the people around me stay alive, stay safe stay healthy. And that was one of the most insidious and harmful protective decisions that I ever made. And it really contributed to my downward spiral with my eating disorder and perfectionism and people pleasing, because from a very young age, I started taking on the weight of the world and feeling responsible for all of those around me it's called becoming a parentified child when you don't really get to be a child as a child because you're having to parent your parents. And because of that, I got locked into a stress cycle that I didn't complete for 15 years, 20 years, maybe even longer, where I woke up into a world where if somebody wasn't okay around me, it was my fault and I was bad. I was bad if somebody wasn't okay around me. And that's a very stressful existence because rarely is there not going to be anybody (laughs) that's not okay around you. And that protective decision, that decision that I made when I was very young, that it's my responsibility to keep everybody safe around me, it wreaked a lot of havoc on my life until I identified that decision and realized that it was not serving me at all. And it wasn't true and started to work on undoing that decision. And a lot of my work since then has been working to let people be with their own discomfort, (laughs) unless they're coming to me as their coach 
or as their healer or as their retreat leader saying, hello, this is what I'm dealing with. Will you please support me in this? And we have a container, we have a structure, we have a session or a retreat in which to dive into this, right? Unless there's that agreement and there's that container and there's that buy-in. A lot of my work since then has been allowing other people to be with their shit (laughs) and being like, that's yours. That is yours. That is not mine because otherwise I'll just take it all on and I will bury myself. Yeah other people are going through and what they're dealing with and it's not sustainable and it's not actually helpful it's not actually kind because then I'm not truly available for anyone because I'm so spread thin and I'm so burnt out yeah so that's that's one protective decision from my childhood that I've I've worked a lot to undo I think that for anyone listening who has experienced trauma in any regard in their childhood, who maybe feels discouraged from turning their life around. If they're still dealing with this day to day, or they're feeling lesser than this should be a sign to them that like you can change your reality. Like you said earlier, and you can really reroute your life's destiny if you want to call it that. Yeah. And that's where this perspective, everything's happening for me, not to me comes in, which this is one of the trickiest (laughs) perspectives to distinguish when it comes to something like trauma. If often when I offer this perspective to someone, they say, well, how, how can you be saying that my trauma happened for me? And that's why I will reiterate that I'm not saying this is true. It's not the truth. It's not true that anybody's trauma has happened for them. It's a perspective that when you're willing to look from that perspective, you see things differently. You see the world differently from that perspective. And for me, looking from the perspective that all of my traumas happened for me, I can see that it provided me with countless opportunities to reclaim power from where I'd given power away to circumstances outside of myself, reclaim power from my past, reclaim power from other people that hurt me. Like if someone hurts you once, don't let them hurt you every single day by letting them keep your power, let them hurt you once and then take your power back. So I, I can see that it happened for me to put me on the path that I'm now on of, of helping other people heal. There's no way that I'd be able to be as passionate about the work that I do. If I hadn't gone through the darkness myself, it carved out such deeper empathy and compassion and understanding in me that I would other that I wouldn't otherwise have. So when I look from this perspective, I'm able to actually access gratitude for everything that has happened for me. And that feels a lot better than believing that it shouldn't have happened and believing that I'm a victim and hanging on to, to resentment and keeping myself in the prison of unforgiveness. See, this is why I say you're a ray of light because like, that's just so beautiful in and of itself. Thank you, Molly. Can you just explain, I guess, like, so your retreats, and then you also offer one-on-one coaching. It's, it's all really the same, like whether I'm writing articles or doing my online course, true power, or, uh, leading a shift retreat or coaching somebody one-on-one it's all trying to identify which transformational tool is going to cause a shift in that person's experience of life which tool is going to allow them to reclaim power, which tool is going to give them access to a new perspective that feels better, that feels more freeing, that feels more peaceful. 
that gives them access to being who they most want to be is helping people identify their core desired ways of being. So how do you want to show up in the world? How do you want other people to perceive you? What is the experience you most want to have of yourself? If you imagine that your soul came to this planet to practice certain ways of being, what were those ways of being that your soul came to practice? Was it to practice forgiveness? Was it to practice playfulness? Was it to practice joy? Was it to practice love and kindness? Was it to practice peace? Was it to practice compassion, curiosity? So helping people identify their core desired ways of being and then getting out of the way, whatever is in the way of them being that, which I call shifting from reactive mode into creative mode. When we're in reactive mode, we are reacting to our internal and external circumstances. We're reacting to the emotion that's arising, to the judgment that's arising. We're reacting to the circumstance that's arising outside of ourselves. And we don't have true power. We're just at the effect of whatever is happening in the moment. Whereas when we're in creative mode, that's what we were talking about earlier, there's a space between stimulus and response. Yes, that emotion is arising. Yes, that circumstance is arising. And you can look at it and consciously choose who you want to be. And this takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of discipline, which discipline comes from the root word disciple, which means loving devotion. So it takes a lot of loving devotion to create this space within us to be able to consciously choose to be our core desired ways of being in every moment. And that's really what I, what I teach and what I'm guiding people through, whether I'm working with them one-on-one or in a retreat context or in an online program. And we're applying this to every area of life. So where are you not experiencing yourself as free and powerful and peaceful in every area of life, in your relationships, in your finances, in your career, in your health, in your adventure, in your family? Like, where are you not experiencing the level of power and fulfillment and peace and excitement that you want to be experiencing? And then what's in the way of that? And how can we shift you out of reactive mode and into creative mode in that particular area? So it's a lot of digging and finding these places where we're giving away our power and then causing a shift there so that that power can come back to that person. Um, In the retreats, it is much more experiential meaning we not only have the group coaching where everyone's learning these transformational tools and applying them to their lives, but we also have breath work. We have inner child work. We have mirror work. We have connection exercises. We have yoga. We have dance. We have a cacao ceremony. We have all of these. I love cacao. Oh my gosh. I know. I still need to try the chaga. Yes, your Chagachino at home mm. mix. So <laughs> good. Story, I'm like, why haven't I bought that yet? Yeah. But the retreats are really hands-on, I would say. Yep. They're very hands-on. And it's not just like talking about being willing to really face your emotions. It's we're holding space for you to do it right then and there mm. <laughs> and, and guiding you through it. And you're doing it in a group where you get that collective support of, all right, everybody's going through this transformational journey with me. So it's a different flavor. If you're looking for more one-on-one support, like you want to cause a radical shift in your career or your relationship, then one-on-one coaching is better to be able to really direct focus at that. If you're wanting a more intensive three or four day long transformational experience with a group of people than the retreats. And if you're wanting to strengthen your tool belt of transformational tools, then my online program, True Power. So those are the three it's amazing 
options that I have right now. Very yeah. cool. There's something that fits for everyone. Yeah, I hope so. I always like asking people what they enjoy doing for self-care, but I'm actually really curious because your work is not nine to five, open your computer, code something, close your computer, go to happy hour, forget about everything. I would assume that your work is really taxing and it's really, you know, you're going deep every single day, whether it's the one-on-one, the online program, the shift retreats. So how are you making sure you are okay? Because, you know, if you're not, then you can't be helping others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for this question. I really appreciate it. And the opportunity for me to reflect on this because I don't feel like I've been doing a great job of it, to be completely honest. I feel like I've been stretching myself too thin and I haven't been putting up the kinds of boundaries that I need to put up because I love what I do. Like I, there's nothing in the world that I would rather do besides my job. It's my favorite thing. It's so evident. It It like comes out of you. It's like coming out of your pores. I know it has to, I'm so passionate about it, which is wonderful. And it makes it harder to set boundaries. Yes. (laughs) Because what I do for work is also what I love to do for my friends and for my family and everywhere I go. If I'm at a party, I don't want to just be having surface level conversations about the weather. I want to be getting really deep with people and supporting them and having really raw, real conversations. So that's my natural tendency. And then also compassion fatigue is real. And when you're supporting people in deep emotional processes for hours and hours every day, and then you're also doing that during your social time, it becomes a bit overwhelming and exhausting. And I'm still working on what I was telling you about before of not feeling like it's my responsibility to, Mm -hmm. to help everybody (laughs) that I'm around. Um, and if I were doing more of that, I would be spending more time to myself. I'd be quiet more often, I think is the biggest thing. I think I'm talking or in conversation, like pretty much all of my waking hours. And that's not the kind of balance that I would like to have. I would like to have more time to go inwards and do yin yoga and meditate and give myself Reiki and do self-massage and have dance parties by myself and just like go inward and, and feel myself and be there for myself. So that's what I would be doing more of if I were doing a better job at balancing my input and output. Do you have morning routines or night routines or every day looks a little different? Mm -hmm. Every day looks different. I have things that I try to integrate into every day. Like I try to take moments to myself to check in with my body every day and do body scans and feel what I'm feeling at some point every day. I try to have some form of feel good movement every day. I try to have some form of social connection every day. I try to do something somewhat creative every day. And I don't follow a certain structure because my days look, look very different on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. That's another thing that I would like to integrate back in a morning routine. It's on the list. Actually, I wanted to ask you, do you make to-do lists or do you have a certain way of keeping your goals in check without them becoming overwhelming? So it becomes so you don't end up back in the achievement trap. Mm -hmm. Like how do you goal set appropriately? I guess is the question. There are different ways of doing this. And I find that I follow a much more feminine approach. Sometimes my clients are wanting a more masculine approach, not meaning 
that they're men, but meaning they, they want an approach that's more structured, that's more, this is your goal and it needs to get done by this date. And here are all of the benchmarks that you need to meet on the days leading up to this happening. And you'll set reminders for specific blocks of time where you will be focused on exactly this. And here are the, the two top things that you're working on this month. And you're going to let everything else fall by the wayside and really have directed focus on those things. That really works for some people. That's not my style. <laughs> I kind of do goal setting like I cook, which means I have a pot of water boiling on the stove on one burner. I have the pesto sauce marinating on another burner. I have like 12 things in the Vitamix getting ready to blend. I have toast in the toaster. I have, and I'm just like, okay, what needs tending to? Oh, water's boiling. Okay, put, put the potatoes in. Oh, this needs stirring. Okay, do this. Oh, this needs. I like having lots of things at once and kind of looking at all of my children of my creative passion projects and being like, who needs me the most right now? And then going towards that and doing that, it's much more go with the flow. It's much more intuitive. Like I know what my priorities are in a given period of time. And I don't really like sentencing myself to this has to be the one task that you're accomplishing. I'm a little mm -hmm. bit... <laughs> So there's something called high functioning ADD. And I just recently discovered that this is totally me. Like I like having many things going on at once. And it's actually how I focus best. My goal setting is more following inspiration. And I find that that works best. Like if I tell myself, no, you have to work on your ebook today. You can't work on anything else besides your ebook. I get less done than if I have the day and I tell myself, okay, here are the six things that you could put energy into what feels most inspiring right now. And then I follow that and I do that. And then the next thing comes and I follow that and I do that. I find that it really is intuitive. Yeah. That's how I'm most productive. Maybe a strategy huh. coach would tell me that I'm doing it all wrong and I'm open to that, but it's worked for me thus far. I don't think I realized that there was a male and female like mindset behind the approach. Is that well, it's a just thing? Masculine, feminine energy. So when I'm talking okay. about masculine, feminine, I'm not meaning male or female. I'm meaning like the, the feminine essence which is more intuitive, go with the flow. It's more spacious and open and creative fluid. and falling. Yeah, fluid, exactly. And the masculine is more penetrative. It's more single focused. It's more structured. So I think about like, you know, the masculine is the glass and then the feminine is the water that's in the glass. And we do need a balance of both to make it so that the water is not just spilling out all over the place, but some people prefer more of one than the other. And I find that I lean much more towards the, the feminine water flowy side. That is so interesting. That's my takeaway from this entire podcast. <laughs> I'm going to start using this now in conversation. Like I'm going to start analyzing how people are operating their day and then let them know if they have more of a feminine approach or masculine approach. Daniel hundred percent has a masculine approach. If yeah. it's not written down with like post-its, highlights, this is what I'm doing, structure on the calendar. He puts like chill time in his calendar. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's that so interesting. at all. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't really work for me either. I didn't realize it was like the essence of male yeah. or female. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. You know what else you taught me? And I tell you, I think every time that is still to this day, my favorite thing to share and to realize when I'm in conversation after I leave a friend, yeah, conversation or hangout, vampire energy. Energy vampires. Yep. 
It's so good. It's I, can you explain it? So I don't butcher this. Yeah, absolutely. So what we call energy vampires are people who derive their energy and their power from other people rather than sourcing it from themselves. And now there's a nuance here. We are interdependent creatures. Like when a baby is not touched for many years of its life, it develops serious health conditions. We, we need each other. We need each other to regulate our own nervous systems. We are social creatures inherently. So it's okay to need to co-regulate, which is called like you, you and I being here together. Our nervous systems are actually regulating by virtue of being together. So there's something called co-regulating. And then there's also something called self-regulating, which is regulating your own nervous system, sourcing yourself, providing the nourishment that you need for yourself. And ideally there's a balance between the two. Ideally there's a balance between co-regulation and self-regulation, self-sourcing and driving your energy from others. When people don't strike that balance and they're more dependent on co-regulation than self-regulation, they can become what we call energy vampires, which is they, you feel like your life force energy, your essence is being sucked when you're around these people, because they are trying to do that. They're trying to regulate their own nervous system by deregulating your nervous system, by depleting your nervous system and taking that energy for themselves. And there's a lot of subconscious processes that are going on here. It's probably a trauma response. So we can have compassion for it rather than judging it. And when we notice that we're feeling drained, we're feeling depleted, we're feeling out of alignment after spending time with someone, it's likely that you have just been around an energy vampire (laughs) and you don't necessarily need to cut that person out. However, don't keep allowing your energy to be siphoned by other people. A lot of us have a tendency to want to spend our time around energy vampires because we feel generous. We feel like, oh, well, I just made that person's day a lot better. And now I feel better about myself, even though I'm depleted. So we want to watch these patterns in ourselves where like our ego is getting something out of allowing ourselves to be energy vampired. And we want to take responsibility for that and communicate our boundaries and bring awareness to the situation or stop spending as much time with that person. It's up to you how you choose to be responsible for it. I think for me, it was a big thing about being mindful. I didn't really realize what was happening at first. And then I think I was sharing this with you and David in LA and both of you were like energy vampire. Like that's what's happening. And I was like, what? I literally thought you were trying to order a drink because we were already at a bar with like fancy cocktail names. I was like, what are they saying? And then you explained an example, but now I go into relate or I go into you know, conversations or meetups or whatever it is. And if I know someone from the past is going to be there that had given me that yucky feeling when I leave, I'm just Mm -hmm. so mindful. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to put all my energy into this because it's going to drain me regardless. So I just need to not have my guard up, but be aware that I'm not going to leave feeling Mm -hmm. happy go lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great bringing awareness to it and giving yourself permission to not pour as much energy into that person as you would normally respecting yourself enough to give yourself permission and not do that. Yeah. Okay. Really random, okay. but I'm just so curious. What is your love language? Oh my gosh. All do of you them. know? <laughs> it's That's probably, amazing. I think touch is probably first. And then words of affirmation is a close second. Those two are like kind of tied mm-hmm. for first. And then uh, quality time is third. And then acts of service is fourth and gift giving is fifth. But if any one of those is like really missing, I feel it. And I notice it. Like, even though gift giving is my fifth one, if somebody 
has like never given me a present if they're with me on their on my birthday or they've never like I'm seeing someone that's never brought me flowers I'll be like what the heck mm-hmm. I want this so I think I need I need all of them but the the two that I notice the most when they're not there are touch and words of affirmation totally makes sense we want and deserve it all what is one product that has bettered your life like you actually stand behind it and you're like, yeah, this has helped me because X, Y, Z. Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. Lately, and especially during 2020, essential oils were a huge ally for me. That's a good one. They've that's a really good one. Been really supportive. And also smell is one of the strongest ways that we communicate with our nervous system. So this makes sense. Like, you know how I was saying before, there are these little feelers that are out in our environment registering cues of danger or safety in in every moment. Well, smell is one of the strongest ways that our nervous system decides how to react or respond. And so breathing in essential oils that you've kind of anchored an emotion to like geranium for me, I've really anchored joy. Ah. If I'm not feeling that, if I'm feeling out of alignment, I can smell geranium and I can feel that experience coming back into my body. That's really cool. What would, what would your answer be to that question? I know I'm not supposed to ask you back. Oh, crap. I'm putting me on the spot. <laughs> uh, my favorite product, the brand is called Orbit Key. I am known for leaving things behind. It's just like I go to a friend's house and like they are going to call me in an hour letting me know that I left like one shoe, not both shoes. I got in the car with one shoe. <laughs> so Orbit Key created this like key holder that's so organized and you can attach your like keychain if you have your car key your house key but it's very slender and just put together it really has helped me yes by the way it definitely does have a masculine essence before i let you go can you share your contact info what's your instagram what's your website where can people find your where can people buy your book where can they sign up for the retreats Oh yeah. Okay. So my name, Brandilyn Tebow, pretty much gets you to all of those different places. It's B-R-A-N-D-I-L-Y-N and then T-E-B-O. That's my Instagram, Brandilyn underscore Tebow. My TikTok is Brandilyn Tebow. My website is brandilyntebow.com. My email is brandilyn.tebow at gmail.com. And then for my retreats, it's theshiftretreats.org. And that should pretty much give you access to all of my content. Feel free to just message me on Instagram and ask me about my online program or the retreats or any questions that you have about anything I shared. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was so beautiful. Thank you, Molly. So great to see you. Thanks, listeners. (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share with your friends, family, loved ones, really anyone who you think would gain value from this episode. And if you're feeling up for it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It means so, so much. 